Hello everybody and greetings from Alexandria, Virginia, just outside of our nation's capital. My name is Jeff. I'm the pastor and church planner for The Transit. I'm coming to you today just to thank you firstly for praying for us as a church and for your partnership in the gospel. Thank you for uh, all the ways that you give of your money financially, but mostly thank you for your prayer support. The more that we go along, the more I'm convinced that the churches aren't planted alone. They are birthed out of the prayers, the faith, and the support of, of people, uh, many like you. So thank you for all that you've done and all that you continue to do on our behalf to uh, extend the gospel and make Jesus known here in the DC area. Uh, the mission and the vision of our church is no different than your church. That is to glorify God by making disciples. And by God's grace, we've seen that happen over the, the short life of our church. Our story is uh, it's not necessarily unique, but it's interesting. My wife and I retired from the military in North Carolina in on Fort Bragg. We're serving on a church there and just uh, over several years felt the, the burden to start a church and several years later, 10 years in fact, we gathered the faith and the courage to start out on that journey and that brought us to the DC area and we were bold enough to find a place, uh, the school that we're currently in and we launched in April 2013. Churches are built one family, one person at a time and it's been neat to see the transit grow from just a few people meeting in our living room of our house to what it is now. Only God and the Holy Spirit can do that. We've seen God do just what our mission is set out to do, make disciples. It's been interesting to see people from our community groups to Bible studies to outreaches that we've done. Uh, it's neat to see us learning about our city, learning how we can serve it, learning how the gospel can change people's lives here and then seeing that happen in the midst of us. So once again, thank you. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your financial support. Thank you for thinking of us and the gospel here in DC. We are the better for it. God bless. Y'all see some familiar faces in that? These videos bring back memories that seem so long ago. Could you tell I'm a little bit older in that picture? It's like a gradual oldness, isn't it? All right, grab your Bibles, turn to John chapter 1. We're going to be uh, looking at a few verses here as we continue in our series, sort of uh, unpacking some things as we celebrate our anniversary. I'm calling this Vision Sunday only because I don't have a catchy name to give to it. But we're going to talk about vision and mission today. Uh, as you're turning, John 1, verses 35 through 43 is where we're going to be looking. If you don't have a Bible, there are some stacked underneath the chairs down the center, all, center column, so you can grab those, look in the table content, contents, and find John. Uh, I do want to uh, mention something that I forgot. So here's what's cool about uh, this week. This is a busy weekend, busy week for, for our family. My wife was supposed to be at the retreat speaking, all right, but my son David had an opportunity to go um, to the State Science and Engineering Fair. Uh, he had been a first place winner at the Fairfax County Fair in the Chemistry Department Ooh, Division. Yeah. So David went to, the, um, went to the State Fair. He won first place in chemistry at the state level, right? And then he was chosen amongst 18 um, grand nominee finalists. And so uh, there was a little bit of deliberation. They, it took longer than was uh, expected. It turned out that David won the whole thing. Like, David Toomer was like the number one, I don't even know what you call it. What do you call it? He was the number one person that, like, he came out like the grand 
finalist. He won the whole thing. $1,500 uh, prize. He goes on to the international competition uh, in May. And uh, Lord have mercy. What we got on our hands here? Yeah. Cool stuff. I, when, I, when I found out, I cried. Like, I, I did cry. I was, it was like happy tears. It was like, oh my God, I'm proud daddy. All right, John 1, let's read together. You know he didn't get them smarts from me. Y'all know that, right? Yeah. God gave it to him. John 1, let's read together. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you'll see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pause to say thank you. Thank you for the day. Thank you for a beautiful weekend. Thank you for uh, just the, the culmination of our annual women's retreat and all the, the ways that the women were encouraged uh, by each other and through the word and the fellowship of your spirit there. And we thank you for the gathering of your church today. God, would you bless us to... Um, to understand your words a little bit more, that the gospel might be uh, more sweet to us than it was perhaps when we got up this morning, and that by your spirit you would um, help us to sense your, your pleasure at us as we follow Jesus. And we pray that in his name. Amen. Amen. So this is Vision Sunday. We're celebrating five years as a church. And, you know, that's, that's I guess in the grand scheme of things, five years is not a lot of years, but it is significant for a church to make it past three and then five. And, and we want to celebrate that. We want to celebrate God and his faithfulness to us as a church. We are in a transient area and we are a transient church. And to see you all here standing here, uh, I feel like I've I mean, I feel like I've planted like five churches because I mean, some of how many of you were not here last year? Okay, a good amount of you. I like fewer of you than I thought would raise your hand. But we do want to thank God for his faithfulness. We want to praise Jesus for uh, the way that he is building his church, the way he's building Transit Church. And, and more than that, we want to kind of pause, look back over where we've been, and then look forward into where, by God's grace, he might take us in the next five or or more years. You know, one of the things that we're also trying to do is sort of clarify who we are. So if you're with us for the first time, if you're with us because you're checking us out, if you've been here for a little bit and you've never come to the membership class, this is like the perfect time for you to be here because I'm talking to you about some of the things, not all the things that we rehearse in the membership class, but I'm giving you really some uh, some fidelity into the church that you have uh, perhaps made yourself a part of. When I say vision, I don't mean that I have this amazing idea for the future of Transit Church. I'm not going to stand up here and give this entrepreneurial kind of pep talk. I'm not going to give a TED talk you know, to try and convince you that, all right, this is the way we're going to go. Let's charge. Let's go for it. 
When a pastor stands up and talks about vision, he's joining with the wisdom of Proverbs that says, without vision, people perish. And that's true. That's true in any um, area of life. You're, the, the places where you work, okay? Um, hopefully your family has a sense of vision. This is where we are. This is where we're going. But when a pastor, when I stand before you, really what I'm talking about is discerning what the Lord is doing and asking ourselves, you know what? How can we align ourselves with, with whatever that is? So that's what vision really is. And to do that, what I'm doing over this series, just three short weeks, is I'm asking and answering a question that I think would be important for us as a church to, to you know, to, to um to unpack, to um, think about, and to come back to often uh, as we grow as a church. And so to, today I want to ask and answer the question, who are we? Uh, but before I do that, I do want to sort of review. Last week I asked the question, why does the church matter? And as I was thinking about that this week, I think one of the ways that I can make that more direct is perhaps to ask the question, um, why are we here? And so why are we here? Seriously, why, why this church? Why a church in the suburbs of, of D.C.? Why do we get up on Sunday mornings, come here, spend our time, our labor setting up? Why do we serve each other the way that we do? Why do we uh, put so much effort into creating relationships and community groups? Why do we give the way that we do? Why do, the way that we do? Why do we do all these things? And of course, there's many reasons for that. I want to give you three that I think are are close to the top of, of those reasons before we get into this idea of who we are. And the first is because people were made to know and be loved by God, every single person. So there's six plus million people here in DC, uh, but not just all those people out there, all of us in here, we were made to, uh, to be known and to be loved by God. And so all those people here in DC, they represent not just numbers, but people your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors, perhaps even your family, the people that you sit next to, that you stand next to on the metro, the people that after a church today that you might sit near in a restaurant. That's what that means, that all those people, all of them were made to be known and to be loved by God. I like what the, the scriptures say in Ecclesiastes 3.11. God has set eternity in the human heart. I think we long for that. There's something in us that knows that um, even when life ends, it's not supposed to end. And that's easy for us to see around us. Think of the movies that you watch, the books that you read, the magazines that you unpack. And all of them have these storylines that center around love or time or death or the search for meaning. We are all in this search for making sense of the life that we are living. We all want the answers to life. Unfortunately, though, we search for those answers external to ourselves in the things that we do and the things that we frequent. We search inside of ourselves to no avail because the answer can't be found there. I like what the late uh, theologian R.C. Sproul says. Modern man has this aching void that we're constantly trying to fill. Our search must go beyond the trivial to the ultimate questions of our worth as human beings. We must seek our roots, our origin, and our destiny. He goes on to say, unless our search culminates and the one who alone can provide answers that quench our thirst will never be satisfied. So how is our thirst satisfied? Jesus. Jesus is the only one that satisfies. When we come to faith in him, he immerses us in the life 
of the church. And that really is the second thing that I think we are here for. We're here because God invites us into his community. We are made a part of his community. Last week, I said the church isn't a building. It's not an event. It's not this social pastime that we, uh, that we enjoy. As a believer in Jesus, you become a member of God's family, his household. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us God invites us not only as a part of his family, he calls us his children, sons and daughters of God. That means the people beside you, if they are of faith, they are your brothers and sisters, not just now, but eternally. We are eternally a part of God's family and a part of each other's lives, which means that we don't have to be alone. And y'all have seen this in D.C., right? If you've been here, even in a military context, if you've come and, and been here any amount of time, you notice that D.C. is busy, it's isolating, and it can be transient. It's like people are coming and going like a revolving door, isn't it? And so that means people come here and they get burned, they get jaded, they get lonely. We've had people that have left our church because they made friends with, with military folks and they were here, had great friendship, and then they left. And it's like, oh, I, this keeps happening. I can't, I can't go to a church like that because my heart keeps leaving every time a person leaves. And that is difficult, um, but that's, that's D.C., um, Y'all seen La La Land? Anybody seen it? All right, only a few. I, I have to admit, I've only seen parts of it, I, I like fits and spurts of it, because I, I'm a musical person. I love musicals, but there's something about La La Land. Every time I turn it on, it just seems too happy. I don't even know what it is. But I mean, I've seen certain parts of it, and it's about an aspiring actress and a young musician, and they are, they've come to L.A., they're very career-oriented, and they're trying to make it. And there's this one poignant part in, in the movie where they're sitting down, they sing this song, and the gist of the song is about all those things that we desire about life. What is it? We desire to be loved. We want to be known. Um, we want to have a voice and for have people, to, people to, to be willing to listen to us. And I think that part of the movie, the part that I've seen, I mean, it gets life Right, right. I mean, that's, those are things that drive us. That's what we long for, to be known, to have a voice, to have people that care about us. And I think that's what the church was meant to be, this type of community where people are welcomed and they get that in, in return. And thirdly, we were made for a purpose. There's a lot of theology behind that statement. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith said that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What's your number one purpose on the earth? Like the thing that you are here for is to glorify God. From the, from the minute you wake up to the, the second you lay your head to rest at night and even as you sleep, everything that you're doing is supposed to glorify God. And that's the higher end. Let me give it to you a little bit more practically. Practically, we already know this, right? In, in D.C., where we live, nobody lacks ambition or direction. We're here to be successful. Even those of you in the military, you were brought here because this might be the next uh, rung on a ladder. It's the next job I need to get to whatever that next rank or that next place is uh, to, to wherever I'm going, general or beyond. And so all of us have this thing in us that we want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. And I would tell you, from a spiritual perspective, there's no project that you will undertake. There's no mission that you'll, you'll handle. There's no task that anybody will give you that you take on that is greater than the work that God is doing in his church among his people. And so the church is here because God has made us more than just a building 
uh, a building where we, where we pay attention to our own puny little kingdoms. There's something so much more. And so why are we all here? We're here because each person around us was made to know and be known and loved by God. We're here because, uh, because of the community that God has set us in. We're here because each one of us was made to live for a purpose. And our church is here not because we are the answer, but we know what the answer is. It's, it's Jesus. He's the answer to every question. He's the solution to every problem. And so in Christ, we know God and can be transformed by God. In Christ, we can be a part of a community that goes deeper than our affinity and transcends all of our social statuses. In Christ, we've been given a purpose to live that's bigger than ourselves. We are here as a church because that's God's plan. And through his church, he would touch the needs of people who are far away from him and pour out his grace through us in an incredible way. That's why we're here. That's why the church matters. So who are we in light of that? Look at John. So I, I like, this is an unusual text for me to come and give you vision, um, but I'm really going to pull out one aspect of, of our vision, and that's discipleship. So I'm like laying my eggs on the table, right? I'm going to fry them out in front of everybody to see. We're going to talk about discipleship, but this really is a beautiful picture here in the beginning of John of what it means to follow Jesus, and hopefully you'll hear a little bit of our vision and our mission in the midst of that. Um, what we're seeing in the passage is, is the call to follow Jesus that goes from Andrew to Philip, uh, to Peter, to Philip, and um, ultimately to us today. If you would track the lineage of these early disciples who become the, the apostles who begin the church and, you know, thousands of years later, here we are standing here in this room talking about these men that, that Jesus touched in a, uh, a certain way. But notice that the passage starts with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is an interesting figure in Scripture in that John the Baptist is a New Testament personality, but he, he actually is the last of the Old Testament prophets. John is said to be the greatest prophet because he, he got it. He got the revelation of the Old Testament that Jesus actually was the Messiah, and we read these great words that he will say, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so John represents really all the Old Testament prophets in, in one fell swoop, and here's why he represents them. The, the, he announced the coming of the Messiah. And the hope of the Messiah wasn't just to pardon a few sins and, and be nice to people. The hope of the Messiah wasn't that they have some, some mega... Um, popular person that they could come to the synagogue and hear speak on on Sundays, on the weekend. The hope of the Messiah was renewal. It was the, the restoration. It was the culmination of all things. And scripture speaks to that. That, that. that actually is the vision of scripture, that Jesus comes and he is uh, God incarnate, and he would wrong, he would right every wrong. He would make all things right. And ultimately, as the world began with man and create, creation in the presence of God, in God's place, with God enjoying him, that we would return to that at some point. And, and, and that really is what John is announcing here. So that's the vision of Scripture, but that's also the vision of the church. That's, that's the vision, particularly, of, of our church. We don't use the word renewal or restoration a lot. We use a more common word, transformation. 
And here's what we mean by that word, transformation. We see the vision of our church as the personal and corporate transformation of God's people through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the work of the gospel would be so pervasive that it would leak out of us. And it couldn't help but touch the things around it. The people that you work with, the community that you live in, the people that you happen upon as you're going to the barbershop or to the grocery store, um, all those places, that it would leak into the families that you live with. We want to see transformation so up close and personal in our own lives and our family and friends and all the stuff around us that it has an effect that it would transform it. Right. And really what we're talking about when we talk about transformation, we're talking about change, like holistic change, personal change, spiritual change, relational change, cultural change. Close your eyes for two seconds. Think about all those things that you want God to change in the people that you love. Don't you just smile when you think about that? And then think about all those things in yourself that you want God to change, that you need God to change. Here's the thing about transformation and change. It's not just for you. The, the vision of Scripture is that change would happen not just for you, but it would be pervasive. And so not just for you, but for everything through which you as uh, an emissary of the kingdom of God on the planet would touch purposefully and, all, and sometimes by happenstance. God wants change to come, transformation to come through you, obviously, by the Spirit, through the gospel, in all those ways. And so can you imagine with me what D.C. would look like if people stopped looking for identity and approval through their careers because they knew that God approves of them in Jesus and they learned that through you somehow? Can you imagine what D.C. would look like if everyone here knew they had people who cared about them and were committed to them? no matter what, because they learn that through the way that you relate to them. Can you imagine what our suburbs of D.C. would look like if everyone knew that they would be treated with dignity and respect, regardless of their race or age or gender or socioeconomic status, because what? Because of the way that you led your life and interacted with them on the planet. I think that's what we're supposed to see when we talk about transformation. Imagine if all the brokenness around us was mended by the grace of God. And that's the kind of change that I think the vision of our church is, is after. Here's the interesting thing. Change actually doesn't come through us. It doesn't. We need help. We need help to even exact change in our own lives. And that's in this text. That's why John the Baptist, he's smart. He looks at Jesus, he sees him walking by, and he points at him. He's like, oh, there he is, change agent. He's the solution, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the solution. He's the change agent for them, but also for us. The irony of transformation, of change, is that we all have these things in ourselves, about ourselves, and the people that are very close to us that we desperately want to be changed, but we can't actually bring about the change that we want to bring about in ourselves, and not at least not in a lasting way. We can do some small things that might change a look, change a perspective, change you know, one or two things. I'm going to get my tummy tuck next week. Just kidding. 
I'm, I don't know why I said that. I need change here. My wife is helping me change right here. But we can't even bring that about and make it last. Only Jesus can do that. And that's why we say we're seeking transformed lives through the gospel, right? The gospel is what changes us. Only through the gospel can such transformation happen because the gospel reminds me I'm a sinner and I need salvation. And God, through Jesus, by the Spirit, is the only thing that can rescue me. The gospel says that I am not an orphan. I don't have to be alone. I've been included in God's family. I have worth and self-esteem because God created me right from the beginning to be in his image. That The gospel says I don't have to search for significance in badges and tabs. That I don't have to climb the ladder of success. I don't have to run the rat race. Why? Because my ultimate significance comes from God in whose image I'm created. That's what the gospel tells me. And that when you, when you rehearse that about yourself enough that you remember it and keep saying it, you start believing it. That's how change happens. And our role is, it should be like John the Baptist. We're shining this spotlight on Jesus and we're saying to those people who are around us, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I think that's why when it comes to talking about change and even mission and vision as a church, we say we are all about Jesus. That's what I said last week. Biblical truth, Jesus-centered church, gospel-centered community. That's who we want to be. Jesus is the head of the church. He's the king of the kingdom. He's the savior of the world. Jesus is the lamb of God who died for our sins. He's the conquering king who rose from the grave. He's the loving redeemer who can take the worst of any situation and transform it for good, even the mess of our lives. And so we agree and echo with the apostle Paul, as he says in 1 Corinthians 3, For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which has already been laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is our foundation. As Ephesians 2 says, he's the cornerstone for which if we don't lay it right, the building is going to crumble. I like what the hymn writer rightly sang. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. That's the, I mean, I should make it the theme song of our church, right? And so John the Baptist sees Jesus walking by. He points his finger and he says the words. He says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We see in verse 37, the disciples heard him say that. And what they do? They follow Jesus. Like, see you, John. We found a new mentor. More than I found a mentor, they found a new teacher. This is, an inter- this, is a, this is significant. These are the first real disciples of Jesus. His brothers and sisters weren't following him. His mom and dad weren't following him. Nobody was following Jesus. These are the first ones to follow Jesus. And it's important for us to get this because this is the mission of our church. It's following Jesus. And so in these few verses, we're seeing what it looks like up close and personal, real life to follow Jesus. Specifically, we're charged in Scripture to make disciples who, in accordance with the great commandment, right, love God and love our neighbor. Let me unpack that. We love God. And who's our neighbor? It's, it's those who are around us, anybody, Lottie Dottie. And it's the world around us. That's a lot of people. But God doesn't want you to necessarily go across the sea to Africa to to love people. He wants you to love them right where they are. The barber that you always go to, the neighbor and their kids that 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 walk by with their dog and the dog poops in your yard and they don't clean it up. And 
you know, the person on the metro that, you know, that's doing things that they shouldn't be doing, trying to proselytize or sell stuff, you know, those kind of things. Those are the people that God puts in our way naturally. And this passage gives us a, just a, a, a little glimpse of what it means to be a disciple. So what is a disciple? I, I have a very simple definition. It's a follower. It's a learner. It's an imitator. You follow someone so that you can learn from them so that ultimately you can try and be like them. And that's what we're called to do in regards to our relationship with Jesus. But here's what I've found to be true. Everyone is a disciple. The question is, who, to whom, or to what are you being discipled by or to? That's true. And so in our text, you'll notice John calls these two men disciples before they even start following Jesus. Who were the disciples of? They were disciples of, of John the Baptist, and they probably dressed like John. They probably had the vernacular that John had. They, I mean, they probably ate the same thing. I mean, they were trying to do what John was doing because John was the one that, that somehow they were, they were led to. Everyone is a disciple. The scriptures actually call us to be a disciple of Jesus. Before I was a disciple of Jesus, I was, I was a disciple of tennis. I still am. Bjorn Borg, to be specific. So before there was the great Roger Federer, there was Bjorn Borg. And of course, I'm taking you back to the 70s and 80s, for those of you who aren't even old enough to remember those days. And I was like a, a groupie, a hippie. I wanted to be like Bjorn Borg. I grew up, I played, I've played tennis since third grade, okay? And so um, I tried to dress like Bjorn Borg as, as, as often as, as I could get my parents to buy me his clothes. I would buy them, even the little headband that he wore. Of course, I didn't have the nice flowing wavy hair that, that Bjorn Borg had. I had his racket at Wooden Wilson with his name etched in it. Um, I, I sort of designed my strokes, forehand and backhand like, like Bjorn Borg with all the, the spin of, of that era. I tried to be like Bjorn Borg. I was his disciple. But here's the thing. I am not alone because those of you sitting here, you've been a disciple of something or someone, and you might still be. Think about this. Those who try to mimic the voice or perhaps even the dance moves of Beyonce, what are they? They ain't just single ladies. They're, be they're disciples. <laughs> Beyonce's got millions of disciples that follow her every move and mimic her. Beyonce changed the, the, the vocal structure of, of a myriad of artists that are on the scene today trying to do what Beyonce does. But not just Beyonce, every time you read a book, you're being a disciple. Every time you look up to someone and you say in your mind, I want to do and be exactly like that person is doing and being right now, you're being a disciple. But the question always remains, who or what are you being discipled by or to? Who are you following? And the call of Scripture is for us to be disciples of Jesus. That means to follow Jesus in order to learn from Jesus so that we can become like Jesus. So these two disciples, they follow the call. They follow Jesus. They leave John the Baptist, go to Jesus, and after they go to Jesus to become his disciples, Jesus does something very shocking. Look at verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, who are you seeking? What are you seeking? Those are interesting words. These are the, in John's gospel, the, my Bible has red letters when Jesus speaks, and these are the very first 
uh, words that Jesus speaks. I believe that when John died at the island of Patmos that Jesus and, and met Jesus in eternity, Jesus is going to say, like, John, why couldn't you have been a little bit more kinder, gentler, like with my language? Surely I said some things that you remember before just, just this like heart saying, what are you seeking? I don't know. I'm just I'm embellishing. But there's, it's interesting. It's, it's important what's going on here, because not only are these the first words of Jesus, Jesus is doing a couple of things here. First, he's getting to the heart. And Jesus does that, right, doesn't he? And that's why John is, the gospel writer John is telling us Jesus said this. Jesus cuts right to the heart. And he's asking these men when he says, what are you seeking? He's like, what do you want? What, do you, what are you looking for? Because if you think that you can come and connect with me and get anything other than uh, the, the love that I give you through God, then you're looking in the wrong place. He said, I don't have a new religion to give you. Jesus is connecting this question to their deepest needs. Following Jesus involves and requires our whole heart, mind, and our motive. It requires all of us. And he's asking this question, what do you want, so that he would be clear, secondly, about expectations. What are you expecting? What do you want? What are you seeking? Because if you want power for your own purposes, then don't follow me. If you want inspirational encouragement from time to time, if you want your best life now, I'm not offering that. Nothing worth sacrificing for is, if you're not willing to sacrifice, then you need to look elsewhere. You got the wrong guy. And so Jesus is very clear with them on what it means to follow him. And there's some encouragement because of the way the guys respond back. Look at the latter half of verse 38. They say to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you going? And so John doesn't commentate this. John, The gospel writer John doesn't commentate. But we can assume that these two disciples are saying, all right, so I mean, they're asking him, where are you staying? They want to follow him. It's like, all right, you just tell us where, you, where you're staying. We're going to follow so that we can learn to be like you and ultimately imitate you as we were doing with John the Baptist. They wanted to follow him. But then Jesus actually comes back. This is a tit-for-tat kind of conversation they're having. And he comes back uniquely with telling them the mystery and the adventure that comes with following him. Verse 39, he says to them, come and you will see. When you say follow me in the Bible, obviously that has connotations because later on in the Gospels, we learn that follow me means that I've got to deny myself, pick up my own cross to follow Jesus. And so if follow me means laying down all of my life, then come and see is this, this like invitation on the journey of your life. The ladies in, the, in our women's group, they're going through the Gospel of John and they've entitled it Come and See. We are in two weeks, going to start the, the Gospel of Mark, and I'm labeling it uh, uh, on the journey with Jesus. Why? Because I want us to see that, uh, you know, some would say um, following Jesus is boring. That is, you know, I, so I read my Bible, I go to church, I sing some songs. I mean, what, what else is there? And if you think like that, if you said that, it just means that you are following the wrong Jesus. And I don't say that to mean that. I follow Jesus and all goes well. That I've always got a smile on my face that life is always hunky-dory because you will have some up days and, some, and many down days. Jesus says it's through travail that, we, that, we'll, that the kingdom of God comes about. There's probably perhaps more suffering as Jesus not only puts things into us but like tears stuff out of us as we're trying to follow him. 
But it is an adventure, at least I think so. Jesus is on the move. That's what we're learning here from this text. In fact, John says in uh, verse 35 and 36, Jesus is walking by. John sees him, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus doesn't even stop. John can't even catch up with him. The disciples that are looking, they're probably having to run to catch up with Jesus. He's on the move. He has a mission. What's that mission? It's bringing peace where there's where there's hostility, of, of bringing freedom where there's bondage, of joy where there's shame. He has a mission of bringing people who are far away from him more near to him, of bringing all of us out of darkness and bringing us into light. And so when he asks them, Jesus responds, come and you'll see. And I think he's inviting them into this adventure. And you should, you should receive those words for yourself. If you're not a Christian here today, then these words are for you. Jesus is inviting you. Firstly, to repent of your sin, to have faith in him, and then come on that adventure of faith to follow him. Jesus is showing us, particularly here, that we need to know, I mean, what it means to be faithful to him. Some of the things you just don't know when you start off on that journey, do you? He wants us to be constantly coming to him. He wants us to trust him. And trust is a hard thing to come by. Yeah, trust has to be earned. If you think about it, the amount of trust you give someone is based on how trustworthy you think that person is. If someone in Kingstown here came up to you as you're just standing on the sidewalk and say, hey, follow me, you'd probably give that person the side eye. Some of you would turn around and walk the other way. Others of you would run and or call the police, right? Because that, that's kind of creepy. I mean, who does that? You don't trust that person. But what if she were your best friend? And she said, look, I don't have time to tell you what's going on right now, but I just need you to follow me. And very likely, you're going to have a lot of questions, but you're going to at least gesture towards following that person. And all along the way, you're going to say, all right, come on, I, I, I'll go with you. But what, what's going on? How can I come alongside you to help? And so we follow Jesus, not because we have so much faith or we're so spiritual, but because over time we learn that he's trustworthy, that he is, he's earned our trust to follow him. And so Jesus says to them, he says to us, come and you'll see. Verse 39b, so they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. And so really what I want us to get out of this, te this text is this is a picture of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. But we also see as the narrative goes on. That being a disciple shapes all of our life. In fact, if we peer into um, the rest of the text and, of course, all of John, we see that uh, holistically. Everything about these disciples of who they were and what they were doing kind of changes because they are in the proximity of Jesus. It's this whole holistic understanding of what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, the aim of which is really wrapping all of your life around him, your relationships, your resources, your time, your abilities, your talents, your treasures, everything you've got so that they would be shaped by your allegiance to Jesus. And that's what we see in our text, the implications of which following Jesus are immediate. There's immediate life change that happens in this text with these disciples. They get a new, new identity. These people get new families and they get a new purpose. Look at verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. 
he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And so first thing we see Andrew, Andrew gets a new purpose, right? What's that purpose? Uh, following Jesus and ultimately making him known. Andrew meets Jesus. He follows him. And right away, somehow he feels compelled to talk about Jesus and introduce him to other people. And oh, by the way, the person that he introduces him to is his brother, Simon Peter. Y'all know who Peter is, right? He's the principal um, apostle in our, our Bibles, other than the Apostle Paul. And, and the cool thing about Andrew is that every time John talks about Andrew, and it's only three times that John talks about Andrew, he's always bringing somebody to Jesus. And so in this case, he brings Peter to Jesus. And what happens to Peter? The same thing. Peter gets a new identity. He's immersed into a new family, and he gets a new purpose. And I think that happens every time that we allow it to happen in our own lives with the people that we are connected to. They get a new identity, they're immersed into a new family, and they get a new purpose. Here's what's special about this as well. You know, Andrew and, and Peter were biological, I mean, they're real brothers. But in this moment, we don't know exactly when the salvific moment happened with the disciples because it was an unfolding thing of the spirit and and all Jesus understanding, uh, helping them understand who he was and what he had come to do. But definitely the the biological brothers of Peter and and Andrew, uh, they became spiritual family in this moment such that they had a greater bond centered upon the person and the work of Jesus. And I think the same is true for us. When we follow Jesus, we do so arm in arm with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't do it alone. We do it as part of a family. With God as our father, with, our, uh, with brothers and sisters, spiritual brothers and sisters around us so that we have a new identity, we are invited into a new family, and we have a new purpose. And so when Andrew brings Peter to Jesus, it says in verse 42, Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And then, of course, what happens? Peter gets a new name, which means rock. And uh, what we should take from that is not that the church was built on Peter, but that the office of apostle and the, 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 the principal nature of the teaching gift is what God would build his church off of. He changes his identity based off his relationship with Jesus. And then lastly, verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Again, Jesus is on the move and he's inviting you to be in movement with him. This is a neat thing that we see uh, in verse 43. And if we would take the time to read the rest of of this pericope, this passage here, we would see the mission of Jesus is calling people to himself. Look at this diagram. This is a diagram that shows that the people that Jesus reached in connection to other people. And so he found Andrew, got connected to to, to Peter through Andrew. He found Philip because he went to uh, Galilee and he found Nathaniel through Philip. And the same thing would happen in later chapters with James and John. And this, of course, is an evangelistic perspective of, of how people come to faith in Jesus. But Really, in overt and very unassuming ways, God is saying through 
through this, when we follow Jesus, this is like the norm. This is what he would expect, that people would come to faith to Jesus. They get a new identity, be invited into a new family and get a new purpose as they are understanding who Jesus is through the gospel and the spirit of God through your lives. I think that this is the constant call of Jesus. More importantly, this is why we say our mission is making disciples of Jesus, because Jesus isn't trying to um, amass fans to himself. He's looking for followers. He's not drawing a crowd. He's building his church. And that's who we are, Transit Church. We are the church that Jesus is building. We have a mission of personal and corporate transformation, of change that leaks out of us so that it touches everything around us, family, friends, coworkers, dogs, cats, all that stuff. And it would lead then to spiritual, personal, cultural, relational transformation uh, through, through Jesus. Amen. All right, so next week we're going to ask three more questions, but today we're going to eat ice cream. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that it would touch the hearts of your people and they would be encouraged that they are a part of this thing that you're doing, the corporate church, that thing that we're doing, but also here at Transit Church. And, uh, and Lord, we're not special, but we are unique. We are a unique expression of your church. And I give God praise for the five years of the life of our church and all who have frequented the doors of this dwelling that we have and what you are making of us in our community. You've got a long way to go. You've got a lot to do. But uh, Lord, we're willing vessels. Would you do it through us? And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen.